Equine health is our business, horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here, we will have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. All right, everybody, welcome to our latest episode of the EquiConnect uh, Equine Podcast, uh, sponsored by McKee Pownley Equine Services. I am Dr. Kyle Goldie. I am Karen Fell. Today, we have our most esteemed special guest, Dr. Melissa McKee, uh, joining us. Thank you. Melissa, uh, for our listening audience that uh, aren't aware of who you are, please tell us about yourself. Well, I am from Southern Ontario originally. I grew up working in a sales barn, so I had an opportunity to learn a lot of different disciplines. My love was eventing, and I was fortunate enough to find some really excellent horses that I was able to event uh, throughout North America extensively with. And that kind of experience really made me realize how much I love working with equine athletes and combine that with my love of science. I eventually had the opportunity to go to vet school and uh, graduated in the year 2000. Dr. Pownell and I started Mickey Pownell Equine Services a couple years after that, and it has grown into what it is today. Amazing. Yeah, so you are one of the eponymous members of the Mickey Pownell Equine Services team. So yeah, we're in some kind of interesting times right now uh, with COVID-19. How are you handling things uh, over and at your practice in Camelville, Melissa? Well, on a granular level, we are implementing a lot of very careful biosecurity protocols, uh, maintaining physical distancing very strictly. And we've tried to divide veterinarians and technicians into teams that don't really interact with each other as they're moving through the clinic. So if someone develops um, signs of illness and has to self-isolate, the entire practice doesn't go down, uh, so to speak. And that is working out fairly well. Touch wood, we fortunately have been a fairly healthy crew. And we are limiting services to some of the more urgent things. But horses make bad decisions every day. So we are called upon pretty regularly (laughs) to uh, help them out when they get into trouble. (laughs) No doubt. We're very saddened and anxious for the horse industry overall. I know Equine Canada just uh, announced that the show season is being pushed back to the beginning of June at the earliest. And on the racing side, the racing industry is really struggling as well because they've canceled live racing. And that is what drives the income for you know trainers to feed and water and look after these uh, fantastic athletes. So we're glad that there is going to be some government assistance to help us keep everybody employed during this really uncertain and anxious time. So that's a huge relief. And um, hopefully, if we all practice our social distancing and are really respectful of the severity of this outbreak in the short term, um, we'll see benefits in the long run and be able to get back to normal. Absolutely. I am aware of the uh, moves that are trying to be made on the racing side of things to try to uh, give some support to those trainers and owners. Are are you aware of any any assistance that's coming uh, to the non-racing equine sectors at the moment, Melissa? At this time, I am not. However, Equine Canada has been vigorously surveying uh, constituents to identify um, the concerns and areas of need. And I know they are lobbying the government for for some support for these business owners. Indeed, particularly establishments that run riding schools depend on 
that regular income of, that those horses provide because they don't have a boarding income per se. Um, and that's a, a huge concern. So we're looking at ways that we can try and help out from our end too, to, to look after these school horses. They have really shiny halos and, and they look after little kids and they deserve the best of care. No kidding. That's the grassroots of all equine sport and all even pleasure uh, starts at those at those riding schools. So absolutely, whatever can be done to try to help those people out. And I, I know that we've been discussing internally how best we can help those people as well. So and horses for that matter. It's a wild time. Yeah, we just have to keep putting one step in front of the other. And I guess we're just trying to be optimistic and uh, and hope that, as you say, with our diligent uh, social distancing and that type of thing hopefully it, it will it will pass well i'd have to say i've been really pleased um we do uh see horses in the clinic pretty much uh race horses at the moment because their training is continuing full on for example the two-year-olds have a very specific program um, that they have to stay on so they're they would be ready to race when we think racing is going to come back so really nothing's changed for that group and the two and three-year-olds are the ones that the owners have been paying for years into a, a pool called a you know a staking fund um, so these horses have some very important races coming up in the season and so they have to carry on as usual so they're training down and developing little bumps and bruises and injuries and we have to we have to address those uh, right away to look after them properly. So those horses, they do come to the clinic and the trainers have been so understanding and so fantastic about how we can safely look at those animals while reducing any kind of human contact or exposure to each other. And it's basically almost like a pass the baton uh, running handoff as the horse comes off the trailer and they strip all of his bandages or any, any material off the horse. And then uh, they stand way on one side and we clip our lead shank on the other side and bring the horse into the clinic and the trainer sits in the truck. And uh, I phone them from the clinic uh, and send them screenshots of x-rays that I'm taking. And, and uh, that's how we're conducting the appointments right now. And every single one of them, I mean, it's a very frustrating process for everybody, but they've been just fantastic about it. It's really reassuring that we're all in the same boat and, uh, and working together. Absolutely. Yeah, we're all in, in it together. That's for sure. Well, I guess we just have to be optimistic and, and hope that uh, that all the efforts that uh, that everyone's making pay off and we can get back to our normal lives uh, sooner than later. But uh, until then, we just have to be respectful of the, the measures that have been put in place and, and trust that that's going to work. We have to, but I agree. I can't wait to get back to just worrying about the horses. <laughs> no, yeah. doubt, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. Enough of that. We brought Dr. McKee on for uh, for a very specific reason, and uh, that's because today we wanted to talk about uh, pre-purchase exams. Pre-purchase exams can be kind of complicated. They can be stressful. They can be a lot of uh, a lot of things. But from a veterinary perspective, they they are an essential aspect of purchasing a horse. With someone uh, with with such amazing experience as yourself, we thought it would be great to have you on to talk about things, Melissa. So. We'll just start going through some questions, and I'm sure we'll have some some good discussion as it as we proceed. Let's go. All right. <laughs> so, what's the point of a PPE? Uh, do you just pass or fail a horse? Well. That's a traditional view of a pre-purchase exam that we kind of go in like the, the emperor at the gladiator games and it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, but the reality is a lot more more complex than that. And we bring a lot more um, to the examination than a red light, green light uh, mentality. So 
How I view pre-purchase exam is a risk assessment. And, and what I bring to the table for that is an understanding of, you know, equine physiology and lameness and a knowledge of what this horse is going to be expected to do with the buyer. So the buyer's expectations are, are key to the decision process. Also, um, if the horse is going to be a forever horse or if it's an investment horse for resale and what resale arena are we looking at, those are hugely important factors that help us decide whether whatever we discover in the course of the exam is something that's a tolerable level of risk or, or too risky. And again, um, previous experience of the buyers or the buyer's agent and trainer can come to bear on that as well, even if we come across a relatively minor lesion, but the buyers had a very bad outcome with a similar problem on another horse, it's understandable that they're going to be a lot more adverse to that than someone who who's never had that experience. So there's a lot that comes into play when we do those examinations and after we gather all the information that we can through our clinical exam and imaging and historical interviewing with the seller, we sit down with the buyer and, and their agent or trainer, whoever else is involved in the process, and just have a really candid discussion about what we found with this horse. What does that mean for the future? Because whatever it is on that day, we're kind of looking into the future with this animal and then decide whether the lesions or whatever we find, because you're always going to find things. No, no horse is perfect. If that's a reasonable thing for them to go forward with, or maybe not. I view pre-purchases exams with uh, like a heightened level of alertness and a bit of adrenaline going into them because I love putting people and horses together when it's when the match is right. But you know, I'm aware that there can also be a lot of disappointment or upset. Uh, there's a lot of emotion surrounding these examinations. And I want to I want to give people the best advice I have. And I do enjoy actually over the years, I'll follow up with people who bought horses just to see how things are going. And uh, I really I'm really tickled when when things have turned out very well. Another thing too is, when, I, when we're having these discussions, I say, you know, this horse is the right horse for somebody. We're trying to decide if it's the right horse for you. And more than once, we, you know, we've had a horse that it wasn't going to be the, a good match for the person who brought it to me in the first place. But, you know, you keep that horse in the back of your mind and you might point someone else in that direction. That horse indeed could be perfect for someone else with a different situation and different needs. Uh, absolutely. I know we always describe a pre-purchase exam as well as a snapshot in time too, right? Yes. Yeah. You can only comment accurately on what you see that day. But, you know, realistically, people are asking you for expectations and analysis of their expectations as well. So, yeah, there is no such thing as a crystal ball. And a lot of it is based on what you've seen before and how familiar you are with the with the, what the horse has to do and where that horse is in its career trajectory. And even other factors like where's the horse going to be going, you know, if it has a little bit of an odd foot, but you happen to know there's a really terrific farrier in that area, like all of these things come into play to help with the decision. So there's a, a concrete analysis of what you see that day that I'm very candid about what I've seen going forward with particular issues we might see on an x-ray or clinical exam, and then a discussion of, is it going to be manageable for for your purposes? I think that's what's expected. It's uh, We just have to be really clear that you know today is real, and then everything in the future is speculation. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, very good way. So the next question we're going to ask is, what is the process involved in arranging a pre-purchase exam? Well, it depends on 
where uh where you started from so a lot of people when they're buying their first horse they're doing it with the guidance of of a trainer like uh, very typically it'll be someone who started off riding school horses in a barn that does some schooling and some showing and then um you know when you're ready for that for that big step your trainer is going to ask around and line up some suitable candidates for you to try and then if you found a horse that you think is the one um, the trainer probably has a veterinarian in mind uh, to engage for that exam. And it's probably the vet that does the regular work at that barn. Sometimes it can be tricky if the regular vet for that horse is also the vet that they want to ask to do the pre-purchase exam. And so it's a conflict of interest for us to do an examination on a horse that we've already done all the previous vet care on, unless the seller agrees to disclose all the medical records. Otherwise, you could be in a situation of doing an exam on a horse that you happen to know has a major flaw or a major problem or even a minor issue, but because of the legality of our medical records, we can't disclose. So that's obviously a huge conflict of interest. And either we ask for disclosure or we just excuse ourselves uh, from doing that pre-purchase and say, you know, I can't do it. I'm the regular vet. Here's, here's a suggestion for someone else that you might try. There are situations uh, where you might be buying a horse that's quite distant from you, and you can often ask your regular vet uh, for recommendations for another veterinarian at that area to do the pre-purchase exam. So in our practice, it happens a fair bit that we're asked to look at a horse that has already been under the care of one of the vets because there's a lot of us in the practice and we're quite spread out. So we very often ask for and are always granted permission for disclosure of the previous medical records. Um, because if you make your living selling, buying and selling horses, no one sale is worth your reputation. Um, people are not going to keep coming back to you if you are concealing flaws or, or pulling the wool over people's eyes. So transparency and honesty is always the way to go. Makes sense. So um, you, you mentioned the the conflict of interest that can happen very easily, especially when perhaps uh, you're in an area where there aren't very many equine veterinarians. So one veterinarian may be seeing a lot of horses in a given area. So the conflict of interest issue happens often. One of the other points I wanted to mention that uh, that we do encounter is if we do have a client, uh, let's say myself or yourself have a have a client that's having a pre purchase done at a a, uh, a much greater distance away from the the regular practice area. Maybe it's in a different country, for example. A lot of the time, the veterinarian that performs the pre-purchase exam will touch base with the uh, client's regular veterinarian, and uh, decisions are often made together uh, with those two veterinarians communicating. Do you want to comment on that, Melissa? I, I agree 100%. That's absolutely the case. And we have many situations where I'll be pre-purchasing a horse here. The buyer is in California, for example, and you get to know a lot of the the vets. So it'll it'll be, oh, this is the buyer and their veterinarian is so-and-so. And I'm like, well, I know her. I'll just give her. And I'll, I call ahead of time and get a sense from the from that vet a little bit what the client's about or what their needs are. And also I asked them for a list of what x-rays they would like to have taken of the horse or any other special examinations that they would like done that they routinely do in their pre pretrust exams. And then we go ahead and do the clinical exam. I do those images. Um, I talk to the buyer, but I also uh, telephone the veterinarian and their veterinarian gets all of the imaging and the report and, and everything. And we follow up and discuss the horse because ultimately 
that vet should be involved. They're the person who's going to be looking after that horse for the rest of its career. And they deserve to, to have some input on whether it's the, the right horse for that client. Fair enough. So one thing I was uh, thinking about, you mentioned when you're discussing with that, that other veterinarian, what x-rays they want, for example, how do you help a client choose how thorough an exam should be? What x-rays should, should happen? Because it seems to me mm-hmm. that there's a wide variation in what's considered a basic pre-purchase examination, for example. Um, you know, some people just want every single limb and the back and uh, maybe a couple of skull rads and other people are like, yeah, I just need front feet and hocks. So how do you help clients make those decisions in terms of what should and shouldn't or, or what the recommendations are? Well, it starts with what the client wants the horse for. So if they are buying a young horse as an investment that resale is very important, then a fairly thorough set of x-rays is a good idea. First of all, they need to identify any issues that may uh, have an effect on whether or not this horse is saleable now. And also if in the future in a pre-purchase something is discovered on x-rays, there is a comparative set of older x-rays they can have a look at. So if something looks like it might be a little bit degenerate, then they can go back and have a look at the previous images on the horse. So for resale horses, and you know, when I say that, I mean, you know, investing in a a pretty high end young warm blood for the jumpers or or the dressage arena. Um, Sometimes I see it a little bit in the Western performance horses, but less so. Uh, So that's one reason we would do a very thorough set of x-rays. I'm going to kind of go take a lateral move here and talk about the different levels of pre-purchase we do and why that is so. And sometimes it's, it's actually a little bit easier to do a pre-purchase exam on a very expensive, uh, horse that's going, you know, somewhere else, because I know the referring vet is going to say x-ray everything, ultrasound all four legs. If you hear a funny noise, scope the throat. So basically it's the budget for investigating this horse is unlimited because the price tag is very high. And it's a little bit more of a transactional situation as opposed to when I'm looking at maybe a $25,000 horse. That's the first horse for a young person. And it's the nicest horse that can be afforded uh, under those circumstances to go into the competition ring. And you know, it's either going to be a young horse that is a bit untried, or it's going to be an older horse that has some issues because there's a huge demand for kind of nice first show horses to introduce young people to the competition arena. And in those cases, you know, I'm very sensitive that the budget for investigating this horse is not unlimited. And we have to try and figure out what we really need to look at to to help people decide if this is the right horse. And so those are in some ways more stressful emotionally because there's so much at stake. And you know, if this horse doesn't work out, there's probably not the resources to get another one. So those ones are, uh, you know, those are the ones that you lie awake at night a little bit that you, you want it to go so well. And we can all relate to loving horses and getting our first horse. So there's a real emotional connection there too. So in some ways, those are more challenging. And 
I think what you have to do is really rely on your very thorough clinical exam and history. And I will go online and see if I can find videos of the horse in the competition arena to notice any subtle performance issues like, you know, losing the left lead or drifting a little bit over the fences and just try and bring all of those bits of information to bear so we can decide what we need to look at. And then what I would do is if there's, uh, you know, feet and hawks are the standard and it makes sense because, you know, 75% of the concerns are going to arise in either of those two spots on a horse. But if we on the pre-purchase exam notice one fetlock is kind of enlarged and a little bit sore in flexion, I'm not going to dogmatically just go straight ahead and do feet and hocks. We're going to start with that fetlock and decide if that's the, a red flag or if that's okay, and then carry on and do some other, other imaging that uh, is indicated. I know in our or in our, in our x-ray systems, we have actually created different levels of pre-purchase exam imaging. So we'll have like basic and, and more intensive. And the basic one enables us to do a, a general survey of, of most of the joints. That shot is going to show us 75 to 80% of the abnormalities that might occur in that joint, or at least give us a clue that we need to look more deeply at that area. So you can do the standard for a joint x-ray is four to six views of each joint, depending on what you're looking at, but you might be able to do one or two and get a sense whether or not you need to dig deeper. So you can go thoughtfully through an imaging exam and get the images you need with a lot of extraneous ones. Yeah, absolutely. I do find because the imaging component of the exams can add up uh, so so quickly, we do often try to be as efficient as possible in the views that we take. And then, yeah, if there's a suspicious lesion, then maybe we, we pursue that particular region more vigorously. But in general, we can do a survey with just a couple views. So mm-hmm. I think uh, the the clients need to know that we're looking for the efficient way to uh, to do these things too. Um, we don't want it to be cost prohibitive kind of mm-hmm. thing. We want to we want to make sure we're giving people exactly. a good assessment yeah. of the horse. The other thing is too, there's that line to walk between you know, taking everything or missing something because you're being super, super conservative because the reality is you can't ride a lame horse, but they are still, they cost the same to take care of. So, and that's the worst case, you know, that's the worst outcome. So I think, again, the really careful clinical and, and trying to just be as thoughtful and as methodical as you can. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Um, going kind of back a step, what happens at our end before the actual exam, so the actual pre-purchase appointment occurs? Well, we are incredibly fortunate to have an amazing team of CSR, so um, people in the office. And when someone calls in to book a pre-purchase, this incredible system swings into action, and it's so seamless. The vets often aren't aware of it until they get handed the paperwork on the way to the exam. So what the CSRs do is they contact the seller of the horse and send them some paperwork to fill out. And it's a medical history form where we ask a lot of uh, questions that are kind of important to assessing the horse and basic ones, including like, you know, deworming vaccinations, dentistry, how long have you owned this horse for? Um, what's, what level of training has it reached? Um, how often is it being worked at the moment? Is it on any medications? And then we go through a bit of a checklist, you know, or just general, has there been an abdominal surgery? Uh, has the horse had lameness problems? Has the horse had pneumonia? You know, and then they sign off on that. And so we have this this paperwork that is a signed disclosure of uh, the horse's medical history to the best of the seller's 
ability, you know, on some horses that are moving through sales barn situations, you know, a lot of the past is a mystery because the horses moved around a lot, but we're all doing the best that we can. And then they also will contact the buyer and do some quoting and determine what level of examination the buyer wants. Some of them will ship into the clinic to see me. Occasionally, I'll use the fluoroscope to look at those horses, depending on what kind of screening we want to do. Um, there's also an option of examining the horse ridden under saddle or just examining it in hand on the lunge prior to doing all of the flexions. So there's a lot of choices for the, the buyer to make and a lot of discussion that is set up ahead of time. The horse's medical record is set up, an account is set up for the buyer. So everything just falls perfectly into place for when the veterinarian steps on the farm. And then we have um, practice software and imaging software that enables us to get the uh, pre-purchase report and x-rays sent off very quickly to whoever needs to see them um, after the exam is completed. So I know that I can say that with confidence that they're amazing because I think every time I do a pre-purchase exam, particularly for someone who is calling from out of country or from far away, they without fail mention what a great job the CSRs have done. So we're really, really proud of how excellent they are with that process. It's complicated. There's lots of questions. It's stressful. You know, you're looking at spending a lot of money on a, on a new horse. And uh, I really love how they smooth that process out. It's so funny how you mention the vet circ kind of oblivious to the amount of work that goes into booking them because I remember we were at a meeting a while ago and we were trying to estimate the amount of time certain things take and uh, I, I think the the vets kind of put forth oh it takes about you know half an hour to just <laughs> book a pre-purchase exam mm -hmm. and the CSR who actually know what they're talking about uh, said no it's probably like three hours yeah. uh, you know what i mean so there's a there's a lot of work that goes into getting a pre-purchase exam set up because we are working with at least twice as many uh moving parts as we are for a mm -hmm. you know a regular veterinary appointment so yeah no they do a, they do a great job for sure did you have a question karen no it was just a, a follow-up question because you're talking about, about after the pre-purchase exam how we create these packages that then go out to the client a report sorry of the pre-purchase that happened and um, just brought up an interesting question that is um, who's entitled to the information and the images that come from the examination well yeah, absolutely this is a, uh, a difficult area for sure so um enlighten us melissa <laughs> it's difficult but it's actually very black and for white. sure whoever has contracted us to perform the examination owns all of the information that is gained during that examination so that is all of the the clinical exam the discussion the imaging all of it. And they are under no obligation to share that with anybody. And so, but that can lead to, you know, some uncomfortable situations. You know, most of the time the seller is present, you know, they want to be there. They're obviously, it's their, their business. They're interested in, in how things go during the pre-purchase exam and also to be available for questions. And they're often one for me when they ship in, they're the one who ships it in. And so it can be awkward, especially if you start to find some ominous looking things on the x-rays and uh, the seller is naturally curious as to what's going on, uh, but it is nobody's information except for that of the buyers. So to get around that, I often will have a little talk with a buyer ahead of time about how they would like me to proceed as we go through the examination. And I would say that most of them are very agreeable with me being upfront 
about what we're seeing as we go and letting the seller know what we're looking at. Occasionally they're not. And then, you know, I'm careful to have any conversations separately in in a private area if that's the case. But often, you know, the buyers do appreciate um, the, the candor and the openness of the seller hearing what's going on, because if they end up not buying the horse, it, it, there's a lot less bad feeling if the seller has an understanding of why the sale didn't go through. And I think this is where that the vet just passed or failed it kind of um, attitude can develop because if you bring a horse that you think is perfectly fine and for pre-purchase exam, it disappears into the the barn and then they walk out and say, thank you very much. Um, we're not yeah. buying the horse and they walk away. Like how can that be in any way other than a horrible experience? <laughs> so, you know, you're, you're wondering what the heck, that's what it is. But, but from a legal perspective, that's all they're responsible for, right? So I think that's what can make it so... Yes. So uncomfortable. So unpleasant. Yeah. Oh, terrible, terrible, terrible. So exactly. That's a great point. Yeah. Awkward. So I I try and stick handle around that by bringing it up at the beginning. And so I have a cue from the buyer, how they want me to handle things. Yeah. You know, we're all hoping for a good outcome here. And so when it's not a good outcome, I think the more information we can all share, the better we're all going to feel about it. And obviously the seller can have some direction as to like, now what do I do? You know, as you know, just putting the horse in the trailer, going home and scratching your head. What was the matter? At least you can say like, you know, he's got a pretty good left front head nod and that fat lock's really swollen or, you know, something like that. So they can at least know what to do um, and and to help that horse. Because sometimes the situation is it's an issue for this buyer and what their needs are, but it's a problem that could probably be addressed and managed. And then we have to find the right venue to market this horse. And so I want to help the seller, you know, in that way, find the right place for the horse. So the horse has a good life and someone's happy, you know, with it and is giving it the appropriate athletic challenges. So I can sometimes say, you know, I don't think we're going to be a meter 40 jumper, but look at those great snappy knees and such a pretty horse and, you know, very calm. Like maybe we could do some, you know, adult amateur hunters here, you know, just try and help, just help them find the, find the horse, the right spot. That's, uh, that's what we do. The other thing with disclosure is sometimes you'll have a buyer do a full set of x-rays on a horse and the sale ultimately doesn't go through. And sometimes the seller will ask for those x-rays. I step away at that point. I said, that is up to you guys. You can negotiate if you want to buy, you know, so to speak, the rights or or buy those x-rays, then the seller maybe will say, yeah, you know, you know, cover the cost of the x-rays and they're yours. So at least the, the seller has some imaging on hand and that frequently happens. Or even if a pre-purchase on the same horse is going to happen in the future, sometimes a person who didn't buy the horse a month ago can recoup some of the investment in the examination by selling those images on. Um, so that is uh, something that that happens. And, you know, we certainly, it's easy for us. We just get the paperwork and then we um, release the images to whatever veterinarian at that end is going to be looking at the horse. And then sometimes we have a situation where we're doing a pre-purchase exam on a horse and it has an obvious lameness. And so the buyer's like, yeah, thanks. Anyways, at that point, Sometimes the seller asks us to continue the examination and work up the lameness and which we're very happy to do if we've kind of booked enough time um, for that contingency. But at that point, the transaction with the buyer ends and the transaction with the seller begins because it's not the buyer's responsibility to do a lameness workup on someone else's horse. I think then it, it transitions back to the seller to take that on and diagnose and, and manage whatever is, is giving the horse a head nod at the, on that day. 
but of course the buyer would have to permit your initial observations uh, to be released to the buyer, uh, to the seller rather, correct? Yes. And I've never had a no on that because this inevitably happens with a horse that someone has fallen desperately in love with. Yeah. If we can figure it out and come up with a reasonable and manageable reason why the horse didn't look good that day, they're probably going to circle back around and, and you know finish off a pre-purchase exam and end up buying the horse. I don't, it always seems to be when someone really, really wants and loves that horse, that's when this happens. So they're, they're invested too in us figuring it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's probably good if both the buyer and seller can sort of remain you know, within the process too, um, mm-hmm. because I know sometimes uh, what can happen is the seller will, you know, they'll say, okay, well, we'll try to get it fixed up and, and we'll, we'll get back to you on it. You know what I mean? And then, then the horse just goes back to their home farm and their home veterinarian. And so you may lose a little bit of momentum on, on the whole mm-hmm. process that way. But yeah, if time does permit it, it's nice if it can all be done in one, one session for just that overall continuity. So everybody can see, and maybe everybody can develop a, a level of comfort with, uh, with the level of risk that's being taken on. That's right. I've also um, seen it happen too at pre-purchase appointments where the horse, same situation has come up lame on this day and we'll just come back. Like maybe something happened that day. Maybe the horse was running around in the field, something happened and and we'll come back. I think that's always good to know that's an option too. It's not, we're happy to come back again to to finish the exam. Oh, for sure. Everybody has a bad day now and then. And inevitably, if a horse is going to get hung up on a stall door, stick its leg through a a fence, um, have a colic, whatever, it'll do it the day before a pre-purchase exam. Pull a shoe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or like half pull a shoe and step on the clip. That's the classic. Yeah. And, you know, actually, that brings me to another thing I would say, an observation I would make is that it is a very false economy to not keep your horse regularly trimmed and shod when you're selling it. Because we do have a lot of horses that come through where you look at your feet and you think, holy smokes, it's got such long toes and the the foot's grown forward and the shoe's digging into the heels. And it's sort of like, well, you know, he was due two weeks ago, but he's for sale and, you know, he's going to have a pre-purchase. So we didn't want to, you know, spend a lot of money getting him reset. The problem is at this point, now the horse is probably heel sore or lame because uh, the foot angles are inappropriate or there's a lot of heel pressure from the shoe that's migrated forward and and hijacks the whole pre-purchase exam because the horse is bilaterally foot sore and, and not looking its best. So it's, uh, it's always sad, you know, when I see that happening. And in those cases, I'm like, take them home, get them shod, you know, let's give them a couple weeks and then let's revisit this exam because I'm pretty sure that it's just that he's really overdue, but I can't be 100% sure. So that's, you know, we stall out once we've looked at the the feet and the horses gimping around a little bit, especially when you get onto hard ground. So it's not fair for the buyer to have to spend a lot of extra money on a bunch of foot x-rays that maybe weren't indicated um, just to try and help decide if the lameness is due to just that he's overdue for shoeing or that there's a problem in the foot. And because we do MRIs on feet all the time, I also know there's a lot of horses that have nice looking foot x-rays that can still have a problem in the foot. So I'm not comfortable going ahead on examination with a horse that looks like it's being hampered a bit by uh, some shoeing problems with its feet. And I tell them to go home, fix it up, and we'll, we'll try again in a few weeks. So it brings up a really good point. 
What can the seller do on their side of things in preparation for a pre-purchase exam? And one thing I'm thinking about, and I have had it um, requested a couple of times, is a pre-sale exam. And I think it makes a lot of sense. It, you know, it doesn't have to be a really rigorous thing, but just a Hey, Doc, I, we're planning on selling this horse. Do you mind having a having a look and just letting us know of anything that might come up on a pre-purchase exam? Because I don't know uh, what you what your numbers are like, uh, Melissa, but you, we do see a, a really high number of horses on pre-purchase exam that present with kind of a rudimentary lameness and that type of thing that would have been caught um, had the horse been presented to the the home veterinarian, for example. I would agree. I'm asked to see or to look over a lot of horses that are intended for sale. Um, you know, sellers, no one likes surprises. And especially not if you've gone through all the process of getting your horse to a pre-purchase exam and then something completely unexpected shows up. So yes, I do find that that level of preparation happens quite frequently, even to the point where very with very young horses, we'll just do um, a set of screening x-rays to see if they have any developmental orthopedic disease or, or bone chips or OCD. Um, that can be taken care of before they start to compromise the the health of the joint kind of thing. So yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And then on kind of a more immediate short-term um, scale, I would say that uh, keeping the horse in some kind of body condition and regular work, because if they're really unfit, they don't represent themselves well. And keeping their feet, even if they're barefoot, keeping them trimmed so they don't have big, you know, flappers with sand cracks and and that kind of stuff. And then yeah. really, really basic stuff like we're coming here to do a pre-purchase exam and touch your horse all over and take x-rays. So if it's not covered in mud, that would be wonderful. <laughs> And like 20 minutes of grooming. And honestly, some of that stuff you can't get off and you'll still see it on the x-rays. She's like, is that a chip? And I'm like, no, it's like dirt ground into the skin that we literally couldn't chisel off him before we took the x-ray. So yeah, super appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or some of those big long feathers and stuff that are caked in mud and you're like, oh boy, this is, these can be challenging x-rays to interpret. So yeah, I think it really comes down to pride of ownership, right? Mm -hmm. Take pride of the animal that you're presenting. I agree. And even just, you know, it's like a coat of paint on a house. I mean, I honestly, I have seen horses that have had a $10,000 difference in their price tag, depending on what barn they're being sold out of. It's that simple. You know, it's it's a, a really tidy, nice, you know, white fences, um, synthetic footing in the arena, you know, that kind of thing versus the very same horse coming out of a, you know, a backyard Dutch door, two stall barn. Those things make a difference and it, you know, it shouldn't, but it does. I remember one time when I was uh, more naive, I saw somebody show a horse on the line and i said you know it just doesn't have the greatest hind end in the world they, <laughs> uh, i said you know what it needs more tail <laughs> and so they got a fake tail for it oh my goodness did it ever look better <laughs> the next time out so you know it's as you say i'm not saying you put a fake tail on every horse you're trying <laughs> to sell but it, it's the little things that count it really it, it, it shouldn't count that much towards the veterinarian's impression i think it's going to count a lot towards your buyer's impression of the horse. Absolutely. Don't laugh. I had a fake tail on one of my best event horses for every dressage test he did. <laughs> it really made him look good. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, amazing. Yeah. It's like they put on 50 pounds and uh, yeah, they oh, just yeah. look awesome. Yeah. It's so funny. All right. What else do we have? I was just thinking maybe we could do a little bit of a breakdown of what actually happens yes, um, at yeah, the appointment. Yeah, good point. Yep. 
Mm -hmm. So assuming we've already had all of the pre-appointment discussions and paperwork is in order, I come in the barn, I like to see the horse in the stall if possible, because I'm interested in, you know, is the stall been cribbed down to a nub on the door? Is there is there diarrhea all over the wall? Has the horse dug the bedding up and is standing kind of with its heels elevated? Is it a hay dunker? You know, just little postural cues, body language cues. You know, does he lunge at the bars when another horse goes by? Uh, all these little things, just, just being around horses and picking up clues about them. I make a point of trying to seek out whoever's involved with the exam. I introduce myself and the technician that's helping me. Um, On our pre-purchase exams, we always record who was present. So even though we have a legal written document that describes what happened on the exam and the findings, we also identify the people that were there. If there was ever like, did she say that? What was this? Did we ask it? It just helps to know who was present for the examination. I bring the horse out of the stall. I like to see how they step out of the shavings onto the onto the hard footing, if they are a little bit tentative about that. Pop them on the cross ties if they cross tie. And then just do a really thorough physical exam, you know, teeth, sinuses, eyes, jugular veins, listen to everything with the stethoscope, check under the hood on a mare to see what her perineal conformation looks like, palpate castration sites, look for abdominal incision from a colic surgery, um, check for neurectomy uh, incisions, uh, you know, in case the horse has been nerved, it still happens sometimes. And I know we have a whole checklist of disclosure from the seller, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to be completely thorough anyways, because sometimes horses, horses have a past. And and just because this person isn't aware of anything doesn't mean that something hasn't happened. And I I remember doing a pre-lease exam on a horse and uh, I discovered it had a really big abdominal colic surgery incision and um, hot debate ensued over whether or not the horse had a colic surgery. And I'm like, look, no one just put an incision here and stitch it up for the heck of it. I mean, this horse had colic surgery at some point along its career. Uh, so it's interesting what, you know, gets forgotten in the wash. Interestingly, another one of those things that gets missed is when I'm taking x-rays on an off-track thoroughbred or an x-ray horse and I find plates or screws in the leg. Uh, yeah. That happens quite a bit. <laughs> it's like, oh, surprise. You're going to have trouble at the airport. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, After that part of the examination, we um, exercise the horse on the lunge quite vigorously, all gates, both directions, small circles, large circles. Uh, I listen to the heart and lungs again after exercise to check their recovery or if there's been any change in respiratory or heart sounds. If available, we'll lunge them on hard footing as well. Um, Safety sometimes limits that if it's icy outside, but I like to see them move on different types of footing. A ridden exam might happen if the if the buyer uh, would like that to be part of the examination. And then I do flexion tests, and that's where we will bend uh, specific joints for a period of time and then have the handler trot the horse in a straight line away from us. And that's to help identify any latent joint inflammation or pain that isn't immediately evident on the exercise ver- uh, portion of the examination. Some people will flex a horse as the first part of the examination. But I feel like that unless you're a three-year-old, that's probably not completely fair because we all deserve a little bit of time to get, get moving. Uh, Being a little bit stiff at the start of exercise is not necessarily an unsoundness, particularly as you age. Um, And I don't want to, um, you know, really bother horse or, or, 
irritate a, a joint that's a little bit stiff, uh, starting out by doing an aggressive flexion test right at the beginning of an examination. So I do, I do allow them to warm up a little bit before we do that part. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I'm usually pretty forgiving about those first few laps around on the, on the lunge. Everybody has deserves an opportunity to warm up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And and a lot of horses, they're not necessarily lame. They're a little bit asymmetrical and that you have to take the conformation into account as well. So the other thing too, um, I like to separate the flexion exam out because when I'm palpating the horse in the barn, I, I palpate and flex and manipulate all the joints and squeeze the feet. And if I notice something a little unusual, I might do a few more specific flexion tests on that joint. And I also get some good information as to what's going on by judging the difference between the cold flexion right out of the stall and then how that horse flexes after it's warmed up. And that can give us some, sometimes they get better, which is good. Sometimes they get worse, which is not. And it can help direct your, you know, your examination there. At that point, uh, if all is good, we have a discussion with the buyer about what we've seen on the clinical examination. And typically at that point, we go ahead to x-rays and then x-rays are based on, you know, as we discussed before, what the intent of the buyer is, et cetera. I do really like to be able to pull the shoes for the foot x-rays. The reality is with the shoes on, you cannot get the best views of the navicular bone and the, and the edges of the coffin bone. So I know it's a pain in the rear, but uh, sometimes you just have to do it. And a lot of times people have tried to get away with not pulling shoes. And then you send the x-rays off to the buyer's vet is somewhere else. And the buyer's vet gets back to you and says, take the shoes off. So you just got to, you have to go back and do it anyways. So it is, it's a hassle, but I always suggest buyers, you know, make sure that they have a farrier lined up to put the shoes back on. Um, We can pull them off, but we don't put them back on. And then we can sometimes do other tests on the horse based on buyer's requests or or what kind of job the horse is going to do or what the clinical exam um, indicates. So we might do some soft tissue ultrasounding. Uh, It's the norm for some of the upper level horses that we're going to ultrasound the suspensory on all four legs um, regardless. Um, we might do disease testing, for example, um, EPM and Lyme disease, particularly in the Northeast seaboard, or um, certain breeds will have genetic issues like uh, Herda in the quarter horses. And there are some genetic tests available for those issues as well that we could submit. Sometimes we will do just routine blood work, um, CBC biochemistry, uh, just to make sure the health status of the horse is normal. And if we hear any kind of funny noise or respiratory noise during exercise, we can put an endoscope up the nose and have a look at the palate and the pharynx and down the trachea into the lungs. And I would say that's a pretty common part of any racehorse pre-purchase exam, but a little bit less for other types of horses, except uh, if you have a show hunter that makes a noise, that's a bit of a blemish. And if you have, for example, an event horse and an endurance horse, that has a respiratory problem that can limit their performance. So those are things that we would investigate. If I'm looking at a horse and I hear an abnormal heart sound, like a murmur that's not easy to characterize or an arrhythmia, I usually, when I'll have a good discussion with the buyer about that, how it sounded before exercise and how it responded to exercise. And we sometimes will refer those horses into the veterinary college for a cardiac ultrasound exam. And in those exams, they're going to look at the valves and, and decide is the murmur or the noise because of valvular disease or if it's just turbulent flow. 
Um, horses have gigantic hearts. They move a tremendous amount of blood. So there, there's quite a bit of turbulence when their hearts are beating. I would say 30 to 40% of young racehorses, I hear some kind of murmur and it's not pathology at all. It's just the gigantic amount of blood that they're squishing through their heart uh, at a high rate of speed. So a lot of murmurs aren't necessarily a problem. One thing that's interesting is the loudness of a murmur isn't always indicative of how severe it is because sometimes, you know, when you're, if you imagine you're whistling, you have to purse your lips very tightly to make a sound. And so sometimes a very loud sound can be coming from a very tiny defect in a valve. But if you have a a quieter sound, it could be because the valve is, is hardly functional and it's just sort of flapping quietly in the flow and not making much noise. So there are general rules of thumb when listening to hearts, but, you know, rules are always made because there's exceptions. That's a really good point about the, the different heart sounds and yeah, how it's very difficult to characterize mm-hmm. the true pathology just on sound alone. Yeah. Uh, arrhythmias are another another uh, common finding I, I, I find on pre-purchase and the, the bulk of them disappear within about five strides of work. <laughs> Exactly. The other thing that will happen is um, we'll get into drug, drug testing in a minute, but if someone's given a horse acepromazine prior to the examination, they'll often have an arrhythmia too, which can and a little bit of a murmur, which can be a clue. Of course, the, you right. know, the stunned glazed expression on their face is also a big clue. And their distended penis. <laughs> I know. It's like, <laughs> is he always like this? But uh, really relaxed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great yeah. show horse. Uh, the other thing yeah. that, that can be referred is if we're examining the eyes, we will dilate the pupils and have a really good look in the front and the back of the eye. And if there's any abnormality there, there is an option to have a board certified equine ophthalmologist examine the eyes and uh, give a prognosis for what is seen there. Again, it, it'll come up a lot on horses that are intended for resale in particular or horses that have breed or pigmentation predilections for certain problems like halflingers, I think uh, are very prone to squamous cell carcinoma of the eyelids and also paint horses or bald fade horses that don't have a lot of pigmentation around the eye. So there's certain breeds that'll have certain problems. Rocky mountain horses are another group that have a little cluster of congenital eye abnormalities too. So we're on the lookout for those things. For sure. Well, a couple other is, um, we often do Coggins tests and export papers for horses. And then, uh, in the case of mares, we're sometimes asked to do a breeding soundness examination. So just to uh, make sure that she's got the equipment and it, and it looks normal, um, for stallions, they would have to do semen collections and fertility. So we, we would refer that on to a reproductive specialist. Uh, insurance is another yes. thing that we often, uh, do at, at the exams. Uh, an insurance exam can be good for 30 days from the date of the examination. So I often, when I'm doing a pre-purchase exam, I'll just fill out the insurance paperwork while I'm doing it. I just include it because it's it's essentially just a pre-purchase exam on a much smaller piece of paper. For sure. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, you'd mentioned drug testing. We have some protocols within the clinic. Um, basically, we store a sample of blood from every single horse that we do a pre-purchase exam on uh, just in case people want to pursue drug testing in the future. But uh, who, who would you recommend actually has a drug test performed prior to uh, purchase? So I pull blood on every single horse without prejudice. I don't want a buyer to think I'm pulling blood because I'm suspicious of something. Right. Absolutely. However, we have had positives on drug testing. Um, generally it is the norm again, once you get above a certain tier of expense with a horse, and if it's a horse that's 
being purchased by a distant buyer or vice versa. Um, the, the less familiar you are with the people involved in the transaction, I think the higher the likelihood that a drug test is going to happen. Um, it has been my experience that some horses that have come from far away have arrived with really big issues. Um, and there's been no recourse for the buyers because they've crossed like several country borders. They just can't go after the buyer or the, or the veterinarian who did the pre-purchase. I mean, so I think that you want to cover all the bases you can and a drug testing is, is one of those. It's sometimes the, there are different attitudes towards the use of medication in horses. So different areas of the industry might be more likely to have medicated a horse. And so in those cases, I might urge the buyer to do a, a drug screen. Um, a couple of things I'll say about drug screen is the turnaround time is really long. It can be a week or even a little bit more than that for the Canadian labs, which is difficult because we're all anxious to reach some kind of conclusion on the process. And so often in the sales contract, they'll write in a clause about the, about the drug screen um, coming to bear on the actual financial transaction part of it, or that they can return the horse if the, if the drug screen is positive. The other thing is, and I hate to let the cat out of the bag on it, but chain of custody is a major issue with um, drug screens, no matter how well they're handled. Um, and that's because every time that material changes hands or is put into another tube, there's a question that there could have been contamination. Uh, and within private veterinary clinics, even if we had a separate room with a separate refrigerator or freezer at a specific temperature, it could still be picked apart on a chain of custody question if if anything ever went to court. So my advice to people is if you think you want to do a drug screen, do it right away. Don't keep it for a week or two in the freezer and then decide to send it. It's going to take a while to get the results back no matter what. And the results are going to be less impactful on your case if, God forbid, you ended up going to court over an issue. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. I found in a limited number of cases that I've had uh, that people have requested drug screens, it's always been for the same issue. It's always two to three weeks after the fact because the horse seems much more excitable than it was uh, when when it was initially pre-purchased. I would agree 100%. I think in every single situation that that's happened for me, in actuality, yeah. the blood screen was negative and it just so happens that new environments are quite stimulating to horses. So um, don't be so surprised uh, when the really calm horse that you uh, have purchased takes a little bit of time to settle in. I, I just find that's a that's an allegation that's commonly made. Oh, I bought this horse and and uh, he was just a just a puppy dog when I first looked at him and he's just gone crazy since he got home and I, I think it's rare for people to have to have adulterated the horse in, in any way. And in actuality, it's just getting used to its new environment. Yep. I have never had any of those come back positive for anything. The right. ones that have come back have been, I don't know, sometimes like, I have to admit, like frank uh, dishonesty on the part of the seller. Unfortunately, a lot of them are mistakes. Uh, I know sometimes in big barns, you know, they, I, I've seen it. It's a, 
place that breeds young horses. Some of them might be on medication, some aren't. They all come in from turnout, like loose in a herd. They go into each other's stalls. They lick feet tough. You know, that kind of stuff happens. So we have had the occasional like low level NSAID positive. Sure. And I just go back and repeat the clinical exam and do another drug test uh, two weeks later. A lot of these times, these are people that you know, they're very reputable sellers. They're mortified uh, that it's happened. And it's, it's you know, I think it's everyone's intentions are good, but there is sometimes deception. And uh, I hate to say it, but you know, we have to acknowledge that it can happen and, and look out for the buyer in those circumstances. You mentioned previously different situations that can occur at the pre-purchase exam. So you mentioned about um, the conflict of perhaps a horse that we've seen before, or it's located um, the regular veterinarians are ourselves within the practice, as well as the little bit awkward situation of who actually owns the information from the pre-purchase. Um, are, what are some other difficult situations that can occur during the pre-purchase exam? Oh, so many, so many to <laughs> choose from. <laughs> I would say the one that I always feel terrible about is a lovely young horse. It's just starting on its career. Often the person bringing it to me is the person who bred it. And, you know, so they have a lot invested emotionally as well as financially in the horse. And this is the first time it's had an exam and something not great shows up on x-rays, for example. Uh, I, I find that I feel so badly for everybody involved uh, and for the horse as well. And hopefully it's a situation we can fix, but just kind of seeing the the kind of shock and disappointment register on the seller's face, because, you know, this is obviously a horse that they are so proud of. I just, I, I feel horrible in those situations. Um, and, you know, I try and pivot and try and talk about how we can address this or what we can work forward to. Sometimes the seller, you know, nobody likes bad news and it often is a surprise. And sometimes the sellers don't react well to it. So there are situations that can be pretty tense and people can be very challenging to, to of what you're saying. And obviously the most, the most consistent one is a lameness that is visible to varying degrees to the people present at the examination. So, you know, for me, a four to five head nod is barely a stumble, you know, in someone else's opinion. And the poor buyer is kind of bewildered by, you know, what's obviously going on. Um, so that that's really awkward. And I find negotiating those situations is um, it's difficult. And again, I always, I try and be sympathetic to what everyone's going through. You know, if I was in the seller's shoes, I'd be upset and surprised, you know, I'm in the buyer's shoes. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And it's kind of my job to help bring everyone to an understanding of, of what we're seeing. And then let's develop a plan going forward. If, you know, maybe we can, maybe it's because you didn't have his feet trim for eight weeks and let's, you know, do this. Or, you know, I don't think it's the right horse for this situation, but, you know, maybe we can, you know, find alternatives. It's usually a conflict between what the seller thinks they have and then what you discover in the examination and what is appropriate for the person buying the horse. You know, it's tricky too if the seller then turns around and says, well, I'll knock 10,000 off the price of the horse. And then the question is, well, what's peace of mind worth? Um, if it's something that the horse needs uh, $5,000 surgery to take chips out of two joints, then that, you know, it's probably a good deal. But if the horse has a chronic degenerative condition, uh, like navicular in its foot, is $10,000 really going to make you sleep easier at night knowing that he could come up lame and be irretrievably lame at some point um, during the show season? Like those things are a little bit hard to predict. So 
once that starts to happen, I step away a little bit because that's between the agent, you know, the buyer and seller's agent or the buyer and seller. Um, I don't think it's necessarily appropriate for us to put price tags on those, on those situations. That's, that's between them. Another thing too, is if you find a problem with the horse um, and the seller goes home and shows their own vet, you know, three of the 24 x-rays or, you know, and, and then says, well, my vet says the horse is fine. And that's, that's a really unfair position to put the other veterinarian in um, because they weren't there for the exam. They didn't see the clinical side, which is so very important when it comes to interpreting what you see on an x-ray. And, and so it's unfair to the, to that vet. It causes the buyer to question, you know, the advice they've been given by you and, and their agent. Um, and I find it generally doesn't breed um, a good relationship. Uh, and then ultimately in the days of social media, um, you have the opportunity to read all the negative comments about yourself and your ability as a veterinarian endlessly after, after something goes wrong. So it's hard not to look, but you know, I've been more than once I've been pretty seriously flamed. And when I look back at the situation, I stand by the decisions I made and the advice that I gave. And, you know, it generally things worked out to support the course that we took, but that doesn't stop a lot of people from piling on and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, talking a lot of trash about you. So you have to have a pretty thick skin and remember that you're there to advocate for the buyer and hopefully things go well, but be prepared, you know, for the fallout if not everyone's happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that that last point that you made, it really speaks to the idea of how much we really want to be involved in the pre-purchase exams where we're representing or representing the buyer, uh, but we have that conflict of interest with the seller as well, because I don't know about you, but sometimes it, it almost feels like you're at the risk of damaging two relationships. Uh, you, you know what I mean? And it's like, boy, this is a lose lose situation. Like what, what, what is the point of this? Um, so it really does behoove everyone to, to try to find alternatives to that, uh, to that conflict of interest. And, you know, maybe even within our practice, maybe we find a veterinarian who, uh, is naive to, um, that particular seller and everything like that, just to try to keep some separation there because it, it just, it gets a little bit problematic sometimes. And and as I say, just, I think we've all had situations that you come away from and you're just like, boy, nobody was happy with that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, and there are, that's a reason a lot of vets just won't do pre-purchase exams. They don't want the legal exposure. There's a lot of, there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of emotion involved. They just don't want to deal with it. So right. you are taking on a lot when you do pre-purchase exams. Um, and I think you have to really care about them to, to do them well. Uh, as mm-hmm. far as we are a bit fortunate in McKee panel, cause there are so many veterinarians in the practice that even within one practice location, it's not that hard for us to find someone who hasn't interacted with the horse much or know anything about it. And frankly, I always try and tell the, the trainers that I work with, don't ever ask me to pre-purchase this horse. Don't ask anyone from this clinic to pre-purchase this horse. Like, just don't. And, and so I, I get that out there right yeah, away if I'm aware that it's just, it's not going to turn out well. I said, take your chances with someone else. Right. Because I just, I'm not comfortable with any of us doing the pre-purchase exam here. Uh, and also because sure, what happens then is the buyer's like, 
oh, you're the vets. We ask the seller to disclose the information. The seller says no. So you can't unring that bell, right? Like once someone says no, you can't have that, then instantly flags, red flags go up. So I just try and avoid that happening in the first place and say, don't involve us in the in the sale of this horse. We can't we can't look after this horse and do a pre-purchase on it for you. It's just there's no ethical way for us to do it. We can't be unbiased. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's challenging, and that that does bring up you know another another issue that um, from a veterinary perspective we're always concerned about, and that is the potentially litigious nature of um, pre-purchase examinations, and and as you say, that's why some people are just like, you know what, this is just not worth the not worth the stress and headache. Absolutely, yeah. I, I hope that buyers and sellers all know the effort and the anguish and everything like that that even the veterinarian in the situation is going through the the veterinarian really wants everyone to be happy ultimately but they do have an obligation first and foremost to the buyer that's who has yep that's who their contractual obligation is to we could all just easily say we don't do pre-purchase exams we're all taking a, a risk on to support the equine community to offer that service so take that into account when you're <laughs> going to flame a veterinarian online or whatever. Yeah, I think but well, haters going to hate, right? But I, I think that's just part of being a, a veterinarian. I spent a lot of time at the racetrack, so I have a hide like a rhinoceros and I can yeah. you know, bother me too much. But uh, I got to look in the mirror at night and know sure. that I made the best decisions I could. And that's more important. But I think that but everyone needs to to realize like when we go into these examinations, you're right, we have the best of intentions. We want to match up people Absolutely. with the right horses so they have a, a great relationship and a, and a really good time together. We're not out to get anybody. Um, we don't pass or fail. Um, we take it really seriously. And we may know things about the buyer situation that the seller's not aware of that no. makes what in their opinion is a perfectly suitable horse, maybe not the right horse for this person. So you know, it's never a, a question of we're out to get you or, you know, we have a grudge or we want to kill the sale. It's it's just not like that. So I always think back. And it's so funny to say that because uh, pe- people have that impression. It's like, that is the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah. I just want everybody to be happy. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I get so, when I have, when I see a horse that checks out well and it's a great match and everyone's excited, yeah. like I get such a rush out of that. I love that. And, uh, I love following up with them, a, you know, a few weeks later. Cause I always warn people, especially first time buyers, when you buy a horse, expect it to do something oh, yeah. dumb the first month right. that you have it. Like it's going to cut its nose on a door latch or something like, but don't panic. Doesn't mean you bought a dud. It's just, that's horses. And they're just, you know, that's part of the bonding because experience. horses. Yeah. Yeah. And so I always warn them that. And then I, you know, I follow up and I'll, you know, I kind of follow the horses through. I really, really love seeing them do well. And this is going to probably date me and you may or may not remember this show, but there was a television show called friends, pretty famous one in the nineties. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've heard about it on Netflix, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Right. So there's this episode. So there's a uh, three male, three female friends and there's one of the female friends is a little bit, you know, flaky. You know, her name's Phoebe. Okay. And she's okay. got long hair and plays the guitar. She sings this famous smelly cat song that cracks yeah, me okay. up. But there was <laughs> one episode that was all about like everyone was going through relationship breakups and how awful they were going. And then they watched Phoebe. She broke up with a couple people over the course of the episode and she would just, she would go over like they'd watch 
watch from the distance in the coffee shop. She talked to them, you know, he'd look a little sad, then he'd smile, they'd both nod, they'd have a big hug, and then she walk away. And I'm like, that's how I want my bad news pre-purchases to go. Like, I like that's my goal is that even if it doesn't turn <laughs> out as we hope, yeah. that we all walk away with sort of like, you know, some disappointment, but a positive feeling for the future. And we're going to find, you know, there's a right horse for everybody and this is the right horse for someone. It's going to happen. So that's what, that's what I see in my head. You know, I've, no seller has ever hugged me yet when it, when it hasn't gone well, but I'm working on it. Perfect. Oh, it's a, it's an admirable goal to strive for, for sure. Well, I feel like we've said a lot. Yeah, I, I feel like all my questions have been answered. Okay. I noticed Kyle made you ask all the difficult ones too. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. <laughs> yeah. I have, I've always thought that the greatest racehorse name is Buck Passer. Oh, that is. That is Isn't good. It? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great name. I, I think about it all the time. Like whoever was sitting around and came up with the with the horse name buck passer yeah was just they're on they're on their i game love going day. through their their <laughs> racing cards and looking at horses names some people are very creative i think Ratface mcdougall is one of my favorites too oh, wow <laughs> i'm gonna throw it out here just because i want somebody to use i have great two great names for horses and when anyone is buying an appaloosa i think you should call it there's an app for that Oh, oh yeah! Wow, really? See, I've been dying. I haven't seen it yet. And then, if you like fast food restaurants and you buy a black and white pony, I think you should call it Panda Express. Perfect. Perfect. That's a good one. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Go. Boy, you're you're really giving back to the community right now, Melissa. <laughs> I know. Jeez. <laughs> I think my, I should have been naming paint and ice cream colors. I think that would have been my calling. <laughs> absolutely. I I love it. Absolutely love it when people say, "Can you ha- help me name my horse?" One oh, of my yes. favorite things of all time. Yeah. Okay. Who are its parents? Yeah. Uh, here we go. Parents. Okay. And and here we go. I'm gonna. I'll have ten good names for you. In uh, in uh, like I just think it's the most fun thing because you can do it yeah you can work on it all the time right driving around you're just like oh here's the name this is this is the one this is the one yeah well i'm waiting for there's a really famous racehorse mare that i worked on named burning point and um, when she's a mother i'm like you promise me you call one of these babies burning sensation because that's got to (laughs) be perfect yeah perfect yeah amazing well um on that note i think we're going to call it a day this room that we're recording in is absolutely a sauna mm-hmm. at the moment <laughs> her and i are both both trying to shed as okay, many okay tmi as tmi <laughs> without, without, it, without, it, without it being heard on the microphone kind of thing but, yeah uh, no it's, crinkling it's, yeah it's way it's way too hot in here um i, I should have taken oh, my long underwear off well before we start <laughs> but uh but anyway it's um, only like nine degrees outside and, and 25 in here That's so I, i'm usually a long underwear guy from about uh september till may so yeah mm-hmm. i know and then you, you take them off you feel like your legs are just flapping in the breeze yes. it's such a weird feeling yeah, they're exactly. so exposed exactly. yeah yes yeah well uh thanks so much for uh for taking the time to speak with us today melissa it was uh it was really really insightful and uh, i think it's been a great discussion for all the buyers and sellers out there mm-hmm. signing off i am uh, dr kyle goldie and i'm karen fell and thank you so much melissa mckee for joining us that was my pleasure thank you as always if you have any questions comments feedback um, please don't hesitate to uh, write us info at mpequine.com uh, thanks so much have a great day thanks guys bye thank you thanks melissa 
This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people. Not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.